0: what is up my dudes welcome back to yet another episode of olympia oddities we're diving right in today and today i'm going to be telling you the story of the eruption of mount saint helens as well as a man who refused to leave his home on the mountain and what happened to him so the episode's kind of gonna have two parts the first being the story of the man and the second being the story of the mountain the man in question harry truman nope not the one that you're thinking of harry r truman With his pink 57 Cadillac, love of Shinley whiskey and Cokes, and inability to finish a sentence without peppering in at least a few swear words, the media flocked to Truman in the days leading up to Mount St. Helens' 1980 eruption after his refusal to evacuate his home on the mountain. Something of a folk hero now, he's been the subject of two books, Truman of St. So- of Helens, The Man in His Mountain by his niece Shirley Rosen, and Legend: The Legend of Harry Truman by his sister Jerry Whitting. According to the Washington Star, more than 100 songs have been written in his honor. Harry R. Truman was born in West Virginia in October of 1896. He didn't know his exact birthday, but the one that he usually used was October 30th. He also didn't know his middle name, just the letter R. Some sources say that it was Randall, but I'm just going to go with what Harry used for himself. He came from a family of foresters who eventually moved to Washington for the cheap land and plentiful timber. They eventually called 160 acres of farmland in eastern Lewis County their home, and he went to high school in Mossy Rock. In August of 1917, he enlisted in the Army as a private and was assigned to the 100th Aero Squadron, 7th Squad. He trained as an aero mechanic, and during World War One, he served in France. During his time in the Army, he sustained a few injuries, and while headed to Europe in his troop ship, the Tuscana, Um, It was sunk by a German U-boat during a torpedo attack off the coast of Ireland. In June of 1919, he was honorably discharged and decided to take up prospecting. After he failed to find gold and get rich, he became a bootlegger. He would smuggle alcohol from San Francisco to Washington during Prohibition. He eventually settled again in Chehalis and operated an automotive service and gasoline station called Harry's Sudden Service. He married the daughter of a sawmill owner, and together they had one daughter. After a few years of this, Truman grew tired of civilization and decided to move to a 50-acre property overlooking Spirit Lake that he leased from the Northern Pacific Railroad Company. He originally opened up a gas station and grocery store, but would eventually open the Mount St. Helens Lodge. He would operate the lodge for 52 years. During the 30s, he and his wife got divorced, and he remarried in 1935. This marriage was short-lived, though, because he would routinely settle arguments by throwing his wife, who couldn't swim, by the way, into Spirit Lake. He began dating a local woman, but he eventually ended up getting married to her sister, Edna, who he called Eddie. This marriage was successful at last, and they stayed together until Edna died of a heart attack in 1978. After his wife's death, Truman closed the lodge and only rented out a few boats and cabins during the summer. Truman became notorious in the area for his outrageous actions, which included getting a forest ranger drunk so that he could burn a pile of brush, poaching, stealing gravel from the U.S. Forest Service, and fishing on indigenous land by using a fake game warden badge. Though everyone knew that Truman was up to these illegal activities, the police were unable to catch him in the act, so they said that they really couldn't do anything because of it. He loved talking about politics and allegedly hated Republicans, young people, hippies, but especially old people. He once refused a man a stay at his lodge and called him an old coot. Once he learned the identity of the the man, Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas, he chased him down for about a mile and somehow managed to convince him to stay. During the two months leading up to the 1980 eruption, he gave numerous interviews to the media where he thought that the claims of the mountain danger had been greatly exaggerated. He stated, I don't have any idea whether it will blow, but I don't believe it to the point that I'm going to pack up. He believed that the local topography would help him in the event of an eruption, saying, If the mountain goes, I'm going with it. This area is heavily timbered. Spirit Lake is in between me and the mountain, and the mountain is a mile away. The mountain ain't gonna hurt me. His refusal to leave the mountain enraged officials. Partially because media representatives and journalists kept entering the restricted zone set up around the volcano, endangering themselves in the process of getting their interviews. He told reporters that the earthquakes had knocked him from his bed as he slept, so he moved his mattress down into the basement. He told others that he had started wearing spurs to bed to deal with the quakes. In response to the public's concern for his safety, he's quoted as saying, The mountain has shot its wad and it hasn't hurt my place a bit, but those goddamn geologists with their hair down to their butts wouldn't pay no attention to old Truman. Despite his rough-around-the-edges, and maybe-the-whole-way-through personality, Truman was popular with children. They wrote songs and poems about the old man and his mountain. A group of kids from Salem, Oregon sent him banners which read, Harry, we love you. This action moved him so much that he went on a helicopter trip, which was paid for by National Geographic, to go visit them on May 14th. A group of fifth graders from Grand Blanc, Michigan, sent him letters that moved him to tears. In return, he sent them a letter and some volcanic ash. He received fan mail of all kinds, including several marriage proposals. He appeared on the cover of the New York Times and the San Francisco Examiner. He was featured by National Geographic and the Today Show, and major magazines like Time, Life, and Reader's Reader's Digest published features on him. On the days leading up to May 18th, state officials tried to evacuate the area of everyone, with the exception of a few scientists and security officials. Truman's niece, Shirley Rosen, said that she brought him a bottle of whiskey to try to persuade him into evacuating, but he declined her offer, saying that he was too afraid to drink alcohol because he wasn't sure if the shakes were coming from him or from the mountain. On the 17th, officials made one more final plea with Truman to try to get him to evacuate the mountain. He refused, and he and his 16 cats stayed in the cabin. And now for the mountain. Mount St. Helens is an active stratovolcano that's located about 50 miles northeast of Portland in Skamania County, Washington. The mountain was formed only within the past 40,000 years, making it geologically young when you compare it to the other volcanoes in the Cascades. The community located closest to the volcano is Cougar, Washington, which is about 11 miles away. Mount St. Helens had been pretty dormant since its last activity had occurred in the 1840s and 1850s. It wasn't until 1980 that the mountain would reawaken. In the two months before it would have its major eruption, the mountain experienced a series of earthquakes and steam venting episodes. The earthquakes began on March 15th and were a warning that magma had started to move below the volcano. The mountain's north slope developed a bulge and a fracture system began forming. On March 20th, a 4.2 magnitude earthquake occurred at 3.45pm. This was followed by more earthquakes, which climaxed on March 25th with an earthquake that reached a magnitude of 5.1. A total of 172 earthquakes at a magnitude of 2.6 or higher were recorded over the next two days. Aerial observation accounts of these smaller earthquakes recall avalanches of snow and ice that were caused by them. On March 27th, explosions of steam caused by magma suddenly heating the groundwater sent rock flying from the summit crater, and created a new crater 250 feet wide. The forming of the new crater and the explosion sent an ash column into the sky, reaching nearly 7,000 feet into the air. A 16,000-foot fracture also developed across the summit area during this activity. More earthquakes and steam explosions followed, sending ash 10,000 feet above the mountain. A blue flame was also seen glowing on the mountain during this time, which was most likely caused by burning gases. The static electricity caused by the ash clouds sparked lightning bolts that reached 2 miles long. On March 30th, 93 separate events were reported coming from the volcano, And by April 1st, geologists were becoming concerned with the strong harmonic tremors they were now experiencing. On April 3rd, a state of emergency was declared. During the rest of April and May, the crater continued to grow and the mountain gave more signs that eruption was imminent. On April 7th, the crater measured 1700 by 1200 feet and was 500 feet deep. It grew at a rate of about 5 to 6 feet per day. And by the end of May it extended more than 400 feet than it had at the beginning. The summit area behind the bulge began to sink, leading geologists to announce on April 30th that this was the area in greatest danger and that a landslide in the area could trigger an eruption. By May 16th, however, eruptions that were visible to the eye had all but died out and the public began to lose interest. The number of spectators at the mountain slowly dwindled down and mounting pressure from the public caused officials to allow 50 carloads of people into the area to gather what belongings they could on the 17th. As May 18th began, the mountain was calm before the storm. The rate of bulge movement, sulfur dioxide emission, and the ground temperature readings did not reveal any changes indicating a catastrophic eruption. A USGS USGS volcanologist named David A. Johnston was on duty at an observation post approximately 6 miles north of the volcano. As of 6 a.m. that morning, Johnston's measurements did not indicate any unusual activity on the mountain at all. At 8.22 a.m., a magnitude 5.1 earthquake occurred directly below the mountain's north slope. Approximately 5 to 7 seconds after the quake, the mountainside crumbled into what would become the biggest landslide ever recorded. It traveled down the mountainside at 110 to 155 miles per hour and covered 24 square miles. Some of the slide hit a ridge about 6 miles north, but most of it ended up spilling into the Tuttle River Valley. The valley was filled up to 600 feet deep with debris from the slide. As it slid into Spirit Lake, it caused a giant wave approximately 600 feet high. The wave triggered another avalanche, and thousands of trees and stumps were demolished and carried with it. Some of the trees had kept the roots intact, but the majority had been sheared off at the stump by the superheated volcanic gases. To this day, clumps of these trees formed into mats still float on the surface of Spirit and St. Helens Lake. Scientists were able to reconstruct the events of this landslide thanks to the photos taken by Gary Rosenquist. Rosenquist had been camping about 11 miles from the blast, but he his team and his photographs were able to survive due to the blast being deflected by the topography of the area just one mile short of his camp. More explosions came from the mountain, and a pyroclastic flow began moving laterally down the mountain. This originally moved about 220 miles per hour, but quickly accelerated to 670 miles per hour and might have even briefly broken the speed of sound. This flow spread out and destroyed an area 23 miles across by 19 miles long. The superheated material caused the water in Spirit Lake and the North Fork Tuttle River to instantly turn into steam, causing a larger second explosion that was recorded as being heard all the way in British Columbia, Montana, Idaho, and Northern California. Interestingly enough, several closer areas like Portland did not hear this blast. The eruption had melted nearly all the mountain's glaciers and snow, which helped cause um, volcanic mudflows called lahars. They would start out at about 90 miles per hour when coming down the mountain, before slowing down to about 3 miles per hour when they entered the rivers in the area. Bridges were destroyed at both the mouth of Pine Creek and the head of Swift Reservoir. The reservoir had risen 2.6 feet by the influx of 18 million cubic tons of mud, water, and debris by noon. Ninety minutes after the eruption, the first mudflow had traveled 27 miles, where witnesses at Warehouses Camp Baker reported seeing a 12-foot tall wave of mud and debris pass by them. By 1 p.m., the mudflows had traveled down the f- north and south forks of the Tuttle River and joined together again where the Tuttle and Cowlitz Rivers meet up, near Castle Rock. When it had reached the forks of the Tuttle River at Salt Lake, it set a record flood stage of 23 and a half feet. A slower mudslide with a thick, wet concrete consistency had also started near the head of the Tuttle River's North Fork. By 2.30, the flows had destroyed Camp Baker. In the following hours, seven more bridges would be destroyed. Around this time, the first human casualties of the disaster would have started. The blast would have been as hot as 680 degrees, filled with debris flying around, and full of suffocating gases. Most of the 57 victims died of suffocation, though others died from burns. Harry R. Truman is presumed to be one of these victims. His remains were never found, and it's assumed that he died of heat shock in less than a second, less time than it would have taken his body to register the pain, and that his body was vaporized. His cats are presumed to have died the same way. All 16 of them were like family to to him, and he mentioned them in nearly every interview he gave. Truman claimed to have a bunker in an abandoned mine shaft that was stocked up with food and liquor, and some of his friends had hoped that he made it there in time. Unfortunately, the lack of warning the mountain gave probably wasn't enough time for him to be able to escape to it, as the flows had reached his cabin in less than a minute. Even if he'd been able to make it into the bunker, he likely would have suffocated from the landslide or been unable to be rescued if he'd managed to survive somehow. In 10 minutes, the ash column above St. Helens reached 12 miles into the sky and continued to spew for 10 hours straight. During this time, parts of the column collapsed and fell back down to the earth, which in turn caused more pyroclastic flows to go sliding down the sides of St. Helens. The lightning caused by the swirling ash particles also caused several forest fires. By 9.45 am, the ash had reached Yakima, the Palm Springs of Washington, which is 90 miles away from the mountain. Four to five inches of ash would eventually cover the ground there. By 11.45, the ash had reached Spokane, blacking out the sky. By noon, the visibility in the area was reduced to 10 feet. Spokane had about a half inch of ash fall in total. At 10.35 p.m., the ash reached the western parts of Yellowstone National Park. The next morning, it was reported on the ground in Denver, Colorado. The bottom layer of this ash was dark gray and contained fragments of older rocks and crystal. The middle layer was mainly glass shards and pumice, and the top layer was a very fine mixture of the above particles. By 5.30 on the 18th, the ash cloud had died down for the most part, but fired up a few more times over the following days. The area that was destroyed by the blast is divided into three zones. The first is the direct blast zone, the area closest to the mountain with a radius of about 8 miles. In this area, almost everything had been completely destroyed. Man-made structures as well as trees, wildlife, and vegetation had either been obliterated or carried away by the slide. This zone is also called the tree removal zone because virtually none were left standing. The second zone is the channelized blast zone which reaches distances of up to 19 miles away from the volcano. This zone is also called the tree down zone. The force and direction of the blast had snapped trees completely off their stumps. It had been like a scythe cutting through tall grass leaving all the trees laying next to their stumps. The blast had burnt the ground causing so much destruction to the vegetation and topsoil that um, regrowth was prevented of new plants for years. And the third zone is the seared zone or the standing dead zone. Uh, Trees remain standing in the zone but were burnt to a crisp by the hot gases from the explosion. Overall, 57 people were killed from the blast and 200 houses, 47 bridges, 15 miles of railway, and 185 miles of highway were destroyed by the eruption. The thick ash accumulation downwind of the mountain caused massive destruction to agricultural crops like alfalfa, potatoes, wheat, and apples. It's estimated that 1,500 elk and 5,000 deer were killed, and 12 million young Chinook and Coho salmon died when their hatcheries were destroyed. Another 40,000 young salmon were killed when they swam through turbine blades of hydroelectric generators after reservoir levels were lowered along the Lewis River to accommodate for the mudflows. The thermal energy released by Mount St. Helens that day reached 24 megatons. The ash fall caused major problems with transportation, water treatment, and sewage facilities. Interstate 90 from Seattle to Spokane was closed for a week and air travel was delayed well into the following weeks because of all the ash. The fine ash also caused other problems, working its way into engines, electrical equipment, and other machinery. It clogged air filters and scratched moving surfaces. In some instances, it even caused short-circuits in electrical transformers, causing power blackouts. 2,400,000 cubic yards of ash were removed from Washington's roadways and airports. That's about 900,000 tons of ash. In Yakima, the Palm Springs of Washington, ash removal took 10 weeks and cost $22 million. Some cities disposed of the ash by using existing old quarries or landfills, but others, needing to remove the ash as quickly as possible, just formed big mounds of it, which were then covered in topsoil and seeded. They hoped that the the plants would help stop the wind from blowing the ash all around and making them have to pick it all up again. Unemployment in the area rose to 10 times its usual rate, but returned to its normal rate once most of the cleanup was through. The public's initial fear of the area after the eruption caused a crippling blow to tourism, which is an important industry in Washington. People weren't visiting the now-singed forests, and also meetings, uh, conventions, and other social gatherings were being canceled or moved to locations in Washington or Oregon that had gone unaffected by the disaster. The lack of tourists proved to be true only for a while, though, and people soon began flocking to the mountain again. The United States Forest Service and the state of Washington opened visitor centers to provide access to those coming to view the area. Truman's Trail and Harry's Ridge in the Mount St. Helens region were named after Harry Truman. The volcanic ash he sent to the fifth graders in Michigan was sold, and they bought flowers for his family with the money. His other remaining possessions were auctioned off to his admirers in September of 1980. His favorite actor, Art Carney, would play him in the 1981 docudrama about the explosion, St. Helens. Memorabilia featuring Harry like shirts, pictures, postcards, and hats were sold in the area. In Anchorage, Alaska, there's even a restaurant named after him, serving dishes like Harry's hot molten chili. Harry Truman's life and attitude were likely the inspiration for the grandma in Dante's Peak, which thoroughly traumatized me when I had to watch it in 8th grade science class. Spoilers for an ancient movie here, but Grandma in the Acid Lake oh my god, burned into my brain. Shout out to Mr. Smith at Bush Middle School for really just instilling a borderline unhealthy fear of the geological region that I live in. That's all for today, folks. I hope you liked it. It's been a while. It feels good to be back. If you want to support the pod, give me a follow um, Olympia Oddities Podcast on all social media. And until next time, friends!